Welcome back to Reading Through the New Testament. This is Pastor Spencer. Thank you for uh, being with us. We are back this week, week number 31. Week number 31. Can you think of any sports players who wore the number 31? I can think of Jamal Lewis, the running back for the Ravens in the year they won the Super Bowl in 2000, that 2000 season. Um, can you think of anybody else who wore the number 31? Priest Holmes was a running back for the Chiefs. He wore number 31. Uh, was a really good running back, wasn't he? Um, who else wore number 31? Maybe you can think of somebody. Um, that's kind of a, a fun little game I do. Of course, maybe that just means I'm weird. But anyway, um, week 31 this week, uh, July 31st through August 6th. Um, we are in 2nd Corinthians, or as some of us may call it, 2 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians, and we're reading 2 Corinthians chapter 2 through 6. Last week we introduced 2 Corinthians. We talked about um, some of the background to it. It is probably the most personal of Paul's letters. It shows his deep love for this church at Corinth, right? He wrote a letter before to them. Now he's writing again to them. Um, he's uh, going to uh, uh, have to defend his ministry. He's going to call them back um, into a right relationship with him, but also in a way that honors the Lord. And uh, it's just a very fascinating letter um, as, as you read it, and I hope you, you'll enjoy it. I want to, this week, we're going to have five readings. Uh, I've got them here. And this week, this uh, for Second Corinthians, I want to use the old uh, commentator, Matthew Henry. Now, uh, Matthew Henry is a famous commentary. You can, you can get Matthew Henry. He's got, they've got the whole Bible uh, set. It's kind of one of those classic sets, you know. Um, uh, Matthew Henry was a great uh, way to, a great person to a pastor in uh, England uh, back in the, um, I, I guess probably he was born probably the 1600s maybe lived into the 1700s, I'm assuming. I wish I had the dates in front of me. Um, But a godly pastor, a godly man, actually Charles Spurgeon once said that, I think it was every pastor should read through all of Matthew Henry one time. And and so he's very famous, very known for his uh, commentary on the scriptures. Um, And so that's what we're going to use for 2 Corinthians, give you a little bit of a taste of him, see what he has to say as we meditate upon this portion of God's Word uh, together. So remember, we are going to look here at the intro. we got the introduction, we've got Paul's relationship with the Corinthians, we've got Paul's defense of his ministry beginning in chapter 2 all the way through chapter 7. And uh, so this week, we're really going to, I want to focus on the introduction. So we're actually going to read one reading from chapter one um, from last week's reading, and then we'll, the rest will be from this week. Uh, but as we, as we think about uh, what Paul is saying to us here, how we can get a flavor for who he is and what's happening to him. So I want to open up here from Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter one. I want, let me read a little bit of the opening bit of here, so that way you get a reminder of uh, where Paul is coming from. Uh, Let me turn there. And 
It opens up this way, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth with the saints, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation, and if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we endure. What we'll realize here is Paul has recently uh, probably gone through a near-death experience himself. That's kind of on his mind as he is addressing the Corinthian church and um, talks a lot about suffering, a lot, a lot about suffering in the Christian life and its role in our lives as believers. But here I want to talk about verse 3 right there. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, um, God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions. Here's what Matthew Henry has to say about uh, beginning there, um, talking about this this section of verses, really kind of verse 3 to 6. So let's kind of um, think a little bit about this. And this is give you a little taste of Matthew Henry. After the foregoing preface, the apostle begins with the narrative of God's goodness to him and his fellow laborers in their manifold tribulations, which he speaks of by way of thanksgiving to God and to advance the divine glory. And it is fit that all things, and in the first place, God be glorified. Observe, first of all, the object of the apostles' thanksgiving, to whom he offers up blessing and praise, namely the blessed God, who only is to be praised, whom he describes by several glorious and amiable titles. First of all, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is the Father of Christ's divine nature by eternal generation of his human nature by miraculous conception in the womb of the virgin, and of Christ as God-man and our Redeemer by covenant relation, and in and through him as mediator, our God and our Father. In the Old Testament, we often meet with this title, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob, to, to denote God's covenant relation to them and their seed. And in the New Testament, God is styled the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to denote his covenant relation to the mediator and his spiritual seed. So that's, by the way, that's a, that's a fascinating insight. Um, I guess I personally had not thought of that, that angle before until um, till just reading this, um, that... In the Old Testament, God is the God of Abraham. He's described this way, right? He revealed himself as the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob to show that God was in a covenant relationship to these men. And so by a covenant, right, God has always revealed himself and worked through covenants. We see covenants in the Old Testament with Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, um, the, the new covenant that comes through Christ. So God is always related to us by means of a an agreement, a uh, a relational, uh, a formal relationship that He gives of Himself in a bond, a binding of Himself to us, and that's a covenant, isn't it? Like a marriage is a covenant; it's a covenant of sorts, and. So God has revealed himself to us by means of of a covenant and relates to us by means of covenant. In the Old Testament, God revealed himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as because he was their God and the God of their physical seed, right? Their offspring, the Israelites, right? Those who were descended from them 
But in the New Testament, God has further revealed himself now on top of that as being now the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ to denote his covenant relation to the mediator and his spiritual seed. So he's the God and Father of Jesus Christ, and Jesus Christ has spiritual children, right? Um, we see uh, Galatians 3.16 um, He is the one offspring, but there are many offsprings in him, and that's us. That's us. So all of us in him. So he is our God and Father, because just as as the parallel, so no longer is there this fleshly seed, but there's the spiritual seed that has always been. Um, Old and New Testament is just more fully revealed now in the New Testament. Um, Very fascinating um, kind kind of thing to note. He also further says he's the father of mercies. There is a multitude of tender mercies in God, essentially, and all mercies are from God originally. Mercy is his genuine offspring and his delight. He delighteth in mercy, Micah seven eighteen. The God of all comfort is another title whereby he's called. Uh, from him proceedeth the comforter. Talking about the Holy Spirit. That's what Matthew's talking about. He's talking about the, the comforter, John 15, 26. He giveth the earnest of the Spirit in our hearts. All our comforts come from God, and our sweetest comforts are in Him. Now, the reasons of the Apostles' thanksgivings, which are these, these are the reasons why he is thankful to God. Uh, Matthew Henry says, first of all, the benefits that he himself and his companions had received from God. That's why they're thankful. The benefits they've received for God had comforted them in all their tribulations. In the world, they had trouble, but in Christ, they had peace. The apostles met with many tribulations, but they found comfort in them all. Their sufferings, which are called the sufferings of Christ, because Christ sympathized with his members when suffering for his sake, did abound, but their consolation by Christ did did abound also. Note this, then we are we qualified to receive the comfort of God's mercies when we set ourselves to give him the glory of them. And secondly, then we speak best of God and his goodness when we speak from our own experience and in telling others, tell God also what he has done for our souls. So they were thankful because of the great benefits that God had given to them um, in comforting them in the midst of their tribulations. Uh, Notice what he says there. He says, we are qualified. Matthew Henry says this, we are qualified to receive the comfort of God's mercies when we set ourselves to give him the glory of them. And so if we wish to be comforted with all of the comfort that God has to give us, we need to be ready also to give him all the glory for those things too. Secondly, the second reason is the advantage which others might receive. For God intended that they should be able to comfort others in trouble by communicating to them their experiences of the divine goodness and mercy and the sufferings of good men have a tendency to this good end when they are endued with faith and patience. So Matthew Henry draws a couple of notes here. He says, note, what favors God bestows on us are intended not only to make us cheerful ourselves, but also that we may be useful to others. Have you ever thought about that? Whatever God gives you, and God gave Paul comfort so that he could then give comfort to other people. Whatever blessings God gives to me and to you, he gives them to us so that we can then pass them on to others. We can't give to others what we have not first received. We must first receive them from God. So if you wish to give, um, if you wish to give love to somebody else, you first have to receive love from God. If you wish to encourage somebody else, well, you must first be encouraged by God. If you wish to comfort and strengthen somebody else, 
Well, you must first know what it is to be comforted by God. You can only give that which you have first received, but whenever we receive it, they are intended not simply for ourselves, but for others. Do you think about that? Whatever blessings God's given you, whether that be physical blessings or spiritual blessings or uh, whatever it may be, your family, whatever, God gave you those, not simply for yourself, but to bless other people with as well. He also says this in the second note. He says, if we do imitate the faith and patience of good men in their afflictions, we may hope to partake of their consolations here and their salvation hereafter. One of the things that we don't like is to suffer. But Paul here suffered, and the reason why he knew such great consolation, he says, right at the very beginning, notice that theme is right at the very beginning of this letter, the reason why he was able um, to receive such consolation and comfort was because of the depth of suffering he experienced. We thought, he said, he'll say later, we thought, we thought we were, we were so burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Have you ever been there? Or... Um, Do you not ever want to get there? Uh, But Paul experienced that. Uh, But with the suffering, God gave the comfort, the blessing. Now, we're going to go through difficult times in our lives. Um, Maybe we, we don't even know what tomorrow holds, do we? But we do know this. He will give us the comfort we need at the right time. He will give us what we need. He is sufficient for these things. And then whenever we get those things, we are to give them to other people. Okay, so that's the first reading I want to read here from you, uh, from Matthew Henry. Now, uh, secondly, I want to do from, is from, I want to skip chapter 2, go to chapter 3, because Paul here is, is talking here, he's, he's um, giving some background of his change of plans, but then he says this about how we are ministers of the new covenant And he says this, he says that God has made um, them sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the spirit, for the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. For if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the spirit have even more glory? So what he's doing here is he's talking kind of a contrast between the old covenant under Moses, and the new covenant in Christ. And he's highlighting the differences um, and the, the, the greater blessings that, and, uh, that have come in the new covenant. And here Matthew Henry has some helpful stuff to say and to remind us. This kind of helpfully gives us a bit of a key as well to understanding the whole Bible. Because that's also what the New Testament does. It helps us to understand the Old, because the Old Testament is Christian Scripture. It is Scripture that reveals Jesus Christ. It is Scripture that reveals God the Father. It is Scripture that reveals the Holy Spirit. It is Scripture in the Old Testament that reveals to us the promises made to believers, whether they are Jew or Gentile. So, the Old Testament, just as much as the New is that. But let's see what the differences are between the Old and the New Testament. How do we understand them? Because this is a big uh, thing that's, honestly, the church has um, had to deal with, is this whole relationship between Old and New Testament. How do we understand that? And, and uh, it, can be, it can be tricky to understand. Let's see what Matthew Henry has to say here. He says this, Here the apostle makes a comparison between the Old Testament and the New the law of Moses and the gospel of Jesus Christ, and values himself and his fellow laborers by this, that they are able ministers of the New Testament, that God had made them so, 
This he does in answer to the accusations of false teachers who magnify greatly the law of Moses. First of all, he distinguishes between the letter and the spirit, even of the New Testament. As able ministers of the New Testament, they were ministers not merely of the letter to read the written word or to preach the letter of the gospel only, but they were ministers of the spirit also. The spirit of God did accompany their ministrations. The letter killeth, this the letter of the law does, for that is the ministration of death. And if we rest only in the letter of the gospel, we shall never be the better for doing so doing, for even that will be a savor of death unto death. That the, but the spirit of the gospel, going along with the ministry of the gospel, giveth life spiritual and life eternal. So what is Matthew Henry saying there right away? He's highlighting the fact that Paul is saying that he's a minister, not simply of the letter, not simply of, it's not simply just Paul talking. And it's not simply us reading words on a page. Now that is part of it, but it's the Holy Spirit who uses those things to create faith and to cause us to be born again. That is where salvation comes from. So the Holy Spirit's role and ministry and activity and work is necessary absolutely for anybody to be saved. If we only hear the words or just simply read the words on the book and the Holy Spirit is not active, these are, these are simply, um, they, they, it is going to be a savor of death unto death. It's going to do us no good. So we praise God, the Holy Spirit, that he comes and opens our eyes to see the truth of Scripture and takes the things that belong to Jesus Christ and reveals them to us and washes us with the word so that we can be clean and to know him and to know the Savior. Secondly, Matthew Henry says this, he shows the difference between the Old Testament and the New and the excellency of the gospel above the law. For first, the Old Testament dispensation was the ministration of death, verse 7, whereas that of the New Testament is the ministration of life. The law discovered sin and the wrath and curse of God. This showed us a God above us and a God against us. But the gospel discovers grace and Emmanuel, God with us. That's very helpful. The law preaches to us God against us. The gospel preaches to us God with us. That's very good. Very good, isn't it? The law shows sin and wrath. The gospel gives promises. Upon this account, the gospel is more glorious than the law. And yet, that had a glory in it. Witness the shining of Moses' face, an indication thereof, when he came down from the mount with the tables in his hand that reflected rays of brightness upon his countenance. To the law was the ministration of condemnation, for that condemned and cursed everyone who continued not in all things written therein to do them. But the gospel is the ministration of righteousness, therein the righteousness of God by faith is revealed. This shows us that the just shall live by his faith. This reveals the grace and mercy of God through Jesus Christ for obtaining the remission of sins and eternal life. The gospel, therefore, so much exceeds in glory that in a manner it eclipses the glory of the legal dispensation. Verse 10. As the shining of a burning lamp is lost or not regarded when the sun arises and goes forth in its strength, so there was no glory in the Old Testament in comparison with that of the New. So what he's saying, he's saying it's not that the Old Testament didn't have a glory its own. It did. But it's like 
It's like the moon is still in the sky, isn't it? Even when the sun is out or whenever our earth is, or star, or maybe a better illustration, right? Because it's kind of, you could say, but there's always stars in the sky, right? But you can only see them when the sun is not shining. Then you can see the stars. But there's always stars in the sky. Why, why can't you see them at noon? Because the sun is there and it outshines all of the stars. Similarly, the law was, had a, had, you could see the law and it did have a glory of its own, a splendor of its own. But whenever the gospel of Jesus Christ comes, the sun of righteousness rises. He outshines it all and exceeds it all. That's what he's trying to highlight. Thirdly, the law is done away, but the gospel does and shall remain. Verse 11. Not only did the glory of Moses' face go away, but the glory of Moses' law is done away also. Yea, the law of Moses itself is now abolished. That dispensation was only to continue for a time and then to vanish away. Whereas the gospel shall remain to the end of the world and is always fresh and flourishing and remains glorious, remains glorious. So he's highlighting there the differences. So the first thing, the Old Testament dispensation was a ministration of death. The gospel is the ministration of life. Secondly, the law was a ministration of condemnation. The gospel is a ministration of righteousness. And thirdly, the law is done away with, but the gospel stays forever. Those are the key differences that he's highlighting there. Now, this doesn't mean, obviously, that Moses did not believe in Jesus to come. And it doesn't mean there was no gospel under the Old Testament. But it does mean that in comparison with the fuller revelation that we have in the New Testament, the Old Testament it pales in comparison now compared to the glory that has been revealed in the New. Um, so that's a very helpful, very good reminder to us. And Matthew Henry has a little bit more to say, which we won't read now. Um, but th- that should remind us of uh, how we read the Bible and of the difference between the law and the gospel. Whenever we preach the law, we preach the what God expects from us. And we also are talking about God's wrath. As Matthew Henry says, the law shows us God against us. And what a terrible thing it is to have God against us, to know that God is our judge and that God sees us as guilty apart from Christ. But now the gospel comes and shows us God with us, that he will forgive us of our sins, that he is our savior. And these two basic Um, the law and the gospel, these two words, these two ideas, these two truths, we have to always proclaim in the church, always proclaim to sinners. And and later on, as, as we are now in the gospel, once we are saved by Jesus Christ, of course, the law no longer can condemn us, but it can serve as a guide now to teach us the way that is pleasing to the Lord and how we can walk in a way that pleases him. Okay, so Paul goes on now and talks about what it means to be a minister of the new covenant, what it means uh, to, to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about the light of the gospel. And he says, eventually he says, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. 
So now Paul is talking about, he's saying, we are jars of clay. We're ministers of the new covenant. God's grace is powerfully at work through us, but we are jars of clay. We are frail and fragile uh, beings, frail, weak servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's not us who do it. It's him that does it through, through us. And so let's talk here a little bit about what Paul is saying here. He says, we are trouble on every side. We are yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Let's see what Matthew Henry has to say about all of this suffering, always bearing about in the body, the dying of the Lord Jesus Christ. What does Paul mean by that? Um, He's highlighting to us the the affliction, and eventually he's going to say these things are so temporary as we look to the things that are unseen. Let's see what Paul writes here. Uh, Matthew Henry says, In these verses, the apostle gives an account of their courage and patience under all their sufferings, where observe, first of all, how their sufferings and patience under them are declared. The apostles were great sufferers. Hmm, That's a good sentence, isn't it? Um, The apostles suffered a lot. Uh, Henry continues, Therein they followed their master. Christ had told them that in the world they should have tribulation, and so they had. Yet they met with wonderful support, great relief, and many allays of their sorrows. We are, says the apostle, troubled on every side, afflicted in many ways, and we meet with almost all sorts of troubles, yet not distressed. We are not hedged in nor cooped up, because we can see help in God, and help from God, and have liberty of access to God. Again, we are perplexed, often uncertain and in doubt what will become of us, and not always with anxiety in our minds on this account, yet not in despair. Even in our greatest perplexities, knowing that God is able to support us and to deliver us, and in him, we always place our trust and hope. Again, we are persecuted by men, pursued with hatred and violence from place to place, as men not worthy to live, yet not forsaken of God. Good men may be sometimes forsaken of their friends as well as persecuted by their enemies, but God will never leave them nor forsake them. Again, we are sometimes dejected or cast down. The enemy may be in a great measure prevail, and our spirits begin to fail us. There may be fears within as well as fightings without, yet we are not destroyed. Still they were preserved and kept their heads above water. Note, whatever condition the children of God may be in in this world, They have a but not to comfort themselves. Their case sometimes is bad, yea, very bad, but not so bad as it might be. The apostle speaks of their sufferings as constant and as a counterpart of the sufferings of Christ. The sufferings of Christ were, after a sort, reacted in the sufferings of Christians. Thus did they bear about the dying of the Lord Jesus in their body, setting before the world the great example of a suffering Christ, that the life of Jesus might also be made manifest, that is, that people might see the power of Christ's resurrection and the efficacy of grace in and from the living Jesus, manifested in and towards them, who did yet live, though they were always delivered to death. And though death worked in them, they being exposed to death and ready to be swallowed up by death continually. So great were the sufferings of the apostles that, in comparison with them, other Christians were, even at this time, in prosperous circumstances. Death worketh in us, but life in you. So that is, I think, a very vivid description of the kind of suffering that Paul experienced. He is, as we are caring about the 
dying of the Lord Jesus Christ in our bodies so that the life of Jesus might also be made manifest in us. And no matter how much we are pushed and pressed and cast down, we are never completely destroyed. The Lord Jesus Christ is right there with us, Paul is saying. He always sustains us. We are weak in ourselves, yes, but we are strong in him. We have life in him. Well, Paul, why? how in the world could you keep doing that? How could you persevere? How could you not give in? Paul says this in verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith, according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also speak. Matthew Henry says this, faith keeps them from fainting. We have the same spirit of faith, that faith which is, the oper- which is of the operation of the spirit, the same faith by which the saints of old did and suffered such great things. Note the grace of faith is a sovereign cordial and an effectual antidote against fainting fits in troublesome times. The spirit of faith will go far to bear up the spirit of a man under his infirmities. And as the apostle had David's example to imitate, who said, I have believed and therefore have I spoken. So he leaves us his example to imitate. We also believe, says he, and therefore speak. So he says, secondly, what's the second thing that kept Paul from fainting? Hope of the resurrection kept them from sinking. Verse 14. They knew that Christ was raised and that his resurrection was an earnest and assurance of theirs. This he had treated of largely in his former epistle to these Corinthians, chapter 15. You remember that? And therefore their hope was firm, being well grounded that he who raised up Christ the head will also raise up all his members. Note the hope of the resurrection will encourage us in a suffering day and set us above the fear of death. For what reason has a good Christian to fear death? that dies in hope of a joyful resurrection. Now, there are other things that he talks about, the fact that they have the consideration of the glory of God, the benefit of the church that keeps Paul going. Um, Fourthly, the thoughts of the advantage their souls would reap by the sufferings uh, of their bodies kept from fainting. And then fifthly, the prospect of eternal life and happiness also kept kept them going. They looked to the things that were unseen, not to the things that were seen. So Paul says, we keep going forth. We keep going. And he says in verse five opens up for, we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. We are always of good courage. Verse six. And then in verse five, he begins to talk about this ministry of reconciliation that they have been given. He says, beginning in verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to God um, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. I want to read a little bit to you about what is this ministry of reconciliation. Well, Paul talks about, first of all, um, he says that Paul mentions two things here. He talks about, first of all, about regeneration, the fact that we are born again to be made new creatures. But then second of all, he also talks about reconciliation. And here I want to talk about 
reconciliation, this second aspect here that Paul is talking about, because he says he'd been given the ministry of reconciliation. He says about reconciliation, that is uh, reconciliation, which is here spoken of under a double notion. First of all, as an unquestionable privilege, verses 18 and 19. Reconciliation supposes a quarrel or breach of friendship, and sin has made a breach. It has broken the friendship between God and man. The heart of the sinner is filled with enmity against God, and God is justly offended with the sinner. Yet behold, there may be a reconciliation. The offended majesty of heaven is willing to be reconciled. And observe, one, that he has appointed the mediator of reconciliation. He has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. God is to be owned from first to last in this undertaking and performance of the mediator. All things relating to our reconciliation by Jesus Christ are of God who by the mediation of Jesus Christ has reconciled the world to himself and put himself into a capacity of be actually of being actually reconciled to offenders without any wrong or injury to his justice or holiness and does not impute to men their trespasses, but recedes from the rigor of the first covenant. He's talking about the law, which was broken and does not insist upon the advantage he might justly take against us for the breach of that covenant, but is willing to enter into a new treaty and into a new covenant of grace, and according to the tenor thereof, freely to forgive us all our sins, and justify freely by his grace all those who do believe. So first of all, what he's saying is, God is the one who has sent the mediator. God is the one who has made reconciliation a possibility. God has sent Jesus. We should have, really, we're the ones who, who, who broke the treaty. We're the ones who sinned against God, right? Humanity. And if you think about it, we're the ones who should have tried to make the first steps to make things right with God. But God, in his infinite love, is the one who took the first steps to make things right with us. Uh, we would never have done that because our hearts now were dead set against him and then filled with enmity and hatred and opposition to God. But God himself takes the first steps towards us, comes to us and sends the mediator talking about Jesus Christ to come and to bring us back together with God, to, to, to bring us back into friendship and wholeness with God and offers us a treaty of friendship with him. What a wonderful privilege it is to know that God is willing to be our God. But secondly, he also says this, he has appointed the ministry of reconciliation. So God sent the mediator, Jesus Christ, but he's also appointed a whole ministry uh, to bring this about. By the inspiration of God, the scriptures were written, which contained the word of reconciliation, showing us that peace was made by the blood of the cross, that reconciliation is wrought and directing us how we may be interested therein. And he has appointed the office of the ministry, which is a ministry of reconciliation. Ministers are to open and proclaim to sinners the terms of mercy and reconciliation and persuade them to comply therewith. Because what he's saying is, is God didn't simply make reconciliation a reality, a possibility, a, a, a reality in Jesus Christ, but then he gave the ministry to go and tell the world about it and to apply that and to tell us the way in which we can become reconciled to God, which is namely through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. But secondly, also, Matthew Henry points out, reconciliation is here spoken of as our indispensable duty. 
Verse 20, did you know that you have a duty to be reconciled to God now? As God is willing to be reconciled to us, we ought to be reconciled to God. And it is the great end and design of the gospel, that word of reconciliation, to prevail upon sinners to lay aside their enmity against God. Faithful ministers are Christ's ambassadors, sent to treat with sinners on peace and reconciliation. They come in God's name with his entreaties and act in Christ's stead, doing the very thing he did when he was upon this earth and what he wills to be done now that he is in heaven. Wonderful condescension. Though God can be no loser by the quarrel, nor gainer by the peace, yet by his ministers he beseeches sinners to lay aside their enmity and accept of the terms he offers, that they would be reconciled to him, to all his attributes, to all his laws, and to all his providences, to believe in the mediator, to accept the atonement and comply with his gospel in all the parts of it and in the whole design of it. And for our encouragement, so to do the, the apostle subjoins what would be, should be well known and duly considered by us, namely one, the purity of the mediator. He knew no sin Two, the sacrifice he offered. He was made sin, not a sinner, but sin. That is a sin offering, a sacrifice for sin. Three, the end and design of all this, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him might be justified freely by the grace of God through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Note here, as Christ who knew no sin of his own was made sin for us, so we who have no righteousness of our own are made the righteousness of God in him. And also, secondly, our reconciliation to God is only through Jesus Christ and for the sake of his merit. On him, therefore, we must rely and make mention of his righteousness and his only. And that is exactly what we do, don't we? And as a church, as believers, we proclaim this reconciliation, this gospel truth to the world. That men need to know there is a mediator who has made a sacrifice for sin and that by faith in his blood, they should be reconciled to Christ, to God as well through him. And we proclaim that to the world. We remind each other of that. This is the core message we have. This is what we preach. This is what we do. We know, we, we think about Paul, right? He says, I, I came among you knowing nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is the core message that we have. Um, and that's what we wish to proclaim to the world. Well, lastly, Paul continues here in chapter five. He wraps that up, begins in chapter six, um, he says, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of, of salvation. And then he also calls them and says, listen, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Come away. So he's calling them in light of all of God's grace to you, in light of all that God has done to reconcile you to himself, in light of all these truths, separate yourselves from this, from, from fellowship with darkness. Leave this away. And so Paul says, he says here in verse 11, um, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Paul writes, uh, the, that's Paul's words. This is Matthew Henry's um, uh, stuff here. 
uh, from 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning at verse 11 there. The apostle proceeds to address himself more particularly to the Corinthians and cautions them against mingling with unbelievers. Here observe first how the caution is introduced with a profession in a, in a very pathetic manner of the most tender affection to them, even like that of a father to his children. Though the apostle was happy in a great fluency of expressions, yet he seemed to want words to express the warm affections he had for these Corinthians. As if he had said, O ye Corinthians to whom I am now writing, I would fain convince you how well I love you. We are desirous to promote the spiritual and eternal welfare of all to whom we preach, yet our mouth is open unto you and our heart is enlarged unto you in a special manner. And because his heart was thus enlarged with love to them, therefore he opened his mouth so freely to them in kind admonitions and exhortations. You are not, says he, straightened in us, We would gladly do you all the service we can and promote your comfort as helpers of your faith and your joy. And if it be otherwise, the fault is in yourselves. It is because you are straightened in yourselves and fail in suitable returns to us. Through some misapprehensions concerning us and all we desire as a recompense is only that you would be proportionately affected towards us as children should love their father. So what he's saying is, listen, Listen, uh, he, 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 Matthew Henry is pointing out how Paul comes to these people as a father to his children in love. He doesn't come and say, listen, listen, you guys, um, you know, and is very rude and, and harsh. He's trying to be as gracious as he can in such a serious situation. And he's saying, listen, you can't do this. I'm, your fa- I'm like a father to you. Well, Paul keeps going here and he says, uh, and Matthew Henry writes that there's a caution or exhortation itself not to mingle with unbelievers, not to be unequally yoked with them, either one in stated relations. It is wrong for good people to join in affinity with the wicked and profane. These will draw different ways and that will be galling and grievous. Those relations that are our choice must be chosen by rule. And it is good for those who are themselves the children of God to join with those who are so likewise. For there is more danger that the good will damage the, that the bad will damage the good than hope that the good will benefit the bad. So he's saying, first of all, that you know, in our relations with people, um, that it's we need to be careful because sometimes isn't that true? Sometimes we think, well, listen, if I I, I could do so much good towards these people, and um, sometimes we 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 enter into relationships with people that are voluntary ones. Right, we're not talking about your family or your children, whatever. But you, you know, um, you know, you you try to enter into things, and you think you'll do good to them. Well, actually, Matthew Henry points out here. He says there is more danger that the bad will damage the good than hope that the good will benefit the bad. So it's it's a sobering reminder that oftentimes the opposite takes place. We end up compromising, uh, not the not the world. Um, and so it's just a, a good reminder to us that we are not to be unequally yoked with them. Secondly, in common conversation, we should not yoke ourselves in friendship and acquaintance with wicked men and unbelievers. Though we cannot wholly avoid seeing and hearing and being with such, yet we should never choose them for our bosom friends. And that's a that's a question that's kind of a hard thing to hear, but... Um, your closest friends that you bear your hearts to... Um, are they believers in Jesus Christ or are they, um, 
are they out, outside of Christ? Now, I'm not saying, I don't think Matthew Henry would say, listen, don't have any dealings with unbelievers or don't be friendly towards them. But there is something here, isn't there, that maybe too much of the time we're willing to uh, compromise at, at certain times. He continues here, Matthew Henry says, much less should we, be, should we join in religious communion with them. We must not join with them in their idolatrous services, nor concur with them in their false worship, nor any abominations. We must not confound together the table of the Lord and the table of devils, the house of God and the house of women. The apostle gives several good reasons against this corrupt mixture. One, it is a very great absurdity. It is an unequal yoking of things together that will not agree together. As bad as for the Jews to have plowed with an ox and an ass or to have sown diverse sorts of grain intermixed. One, an absurdity it is to think of joining righteousness and unrighteousness or mingling light and darkness, fire and water together. Believers are and should be righteous, but unbelievers are unrighteous. Believers are made light in the world, but unbelievers are in darkness. In what comfortable communion can these have together? Christ and Belial are contrary one to the other. They have opposite interests and designs, so that it is impossible there should be any concord or agreement between them. It is absurd, therefore, to think of enlisting under both. And if the believer has part with an infidel, he does what in him lies to bring Christ and Belial together. Secondly, it is a dishonor for the Christian's profession. For Christians are by profession and should be in reality the temples of the living God. Dedicated to and employed for the service of God who has promised to reside in them, to dwell and walk in them, to stand in a special relation to them and take a special care of them, that he will be their God and they shall be his people. Now, there can be no agreement between the temple of God and idols. Idols are rivals with God for his honor and God is a jealous God and will not give his glory to another. Thirdly, there is a great deal of danger in communicating with unbelievers and idolaters, danger of being defiled and of being rejected. Therefore, the exhortation is to come out from among them and keep at a due distance to be separate as one would avoid the society of those who have the leprosy or the plague for fear of taking infection and not to touch the unclean thing, lest we be defiled. Who can touch pitch and not be defiled by it? We must take care not to defile ourselves by converse with others, with those who defile themselves with sin. So is the will of God, as we ever hope to be received and not rejected by him. Fourthly, it is base in gratitude to God for all the favors he has bestowed upon believers and promised to them. God has promised to be a father to them and that they shall be his sons and his daughters. And is there a greater honor or happiness than this? How ungrateful a thing, then, must it be if those who have this dignity and felicity should degrade and debase themselves by mingling with unbelievers? Do we thus requite the Lord, O foolish and unwise? That's the way Matthew Henry ends it. Well, the church here in Corinth apparently had been mingling too much with the world. Remember, we have to be reminded of that. James says to be friends with the world is to have enmity with God. And we need to be reminded of that. While the one hand, we cannot leave the world, and we do appreciate the callings that we have in the world as citizens and at our jobs. On the other hand, we need to realize that we can never be on friendly terms with the world. The world is opposed to Jesus Christ. It is darkness. And in Christ, we now partake in the light. There is no agreement as far as the gospel is concerned, as far as the basic orientation of life. This world is hostile to the Lord, 
And uh, so Paul there is, is calling this church um, back to the Lord Jesus Christ to not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Something to think about, I think, in our day and age, um, and something that we should maybe think about recovering, um, obviously with balance and with the whole of Scripture. We don't want to uh, uh, overlook other portions of Scripture, but considering that, to think about that, what it means for us today. So, well, thank you for listening to this. I hope it's been encouraging to you. Um, next week, we're going to continue reading through Second Corinthians. Uh, hope you enjoyed this. Take care and God bless.